I'm Dr. Derek Cohen, and this is the Foundation Podcast. Well, thank you everyone for joining us this week. I'm Derek Cohen. I am joined today by Andrew Brown and James Quintero again. Gentlemen, welcome back. Thanks for having us, Derek. Thanks. I thought when I got the invitation, it was an April Fool's joke, but uh, come to find out, I'm actually here. Well, beggars can't be choosers, and well, here we are. So <laughs> We're the only ones in the building. <laughs> it's almost like there's something going on up the street. <laughs> But anyway, gentlemen, I wanted you guys to come back simply because not only do I enjoy the dulcet tones that you bring to the electrical airwaves, I also want to hear about what y'all have been working on recently, uh, specifically with stuff that we've talked about on your previous appearances. So let's just jump right into it. So starting off, Andrew, child welfare, big week on the floor. Huge week on the floor. House Bill 567 by Chairman Frank passed the House floor today officially. Uh, with broad bipartisan support, we had uh, Republican and Democrat joint and co-authors on the bill. Um, this is a bill that is really designed to help further the goals of preventing kids of, from going into foster care, preserving their families, and strengthening those families, um, rather than pulling kids into a system that we know is traumatic and harmful to them. Uh, so it's a Fairly broad bill. It covers a number of areas, um, but really one of the main goals of this bill is to address an issue of the confusion of poverty with neglect. Uh, we know that about 75% of kids in the foster care system are there for neglect. And when you look at the economic breakdown across Texas, you find that if you are a child living in one of the 25 poorest counties in Texas, you are statistically more likely to end up in foster care because of a neglect allegation than a child who lives in one of the 25 wealthiest counties. And those counties are inherently more neglectful or? No, they're not. And that, you know, obviously that's the issue of the bill. Like parents in one county are not inherently worse than others. You have an inconsistency across the state in the way that, um, neglect is enforced. And that's partly due to the fact that the definition is so broad that you can fit almost anything you want underneath that definition. And so depending on where you're at in the state, you're going to have that definition interpreted differently. Um, and so you have situations like in Taylor County where Abilene is, their removal rate is multiple times higher than the state average and in other parts of the state, right? We believe that the likelihood of entering foster care should not be determined by where you live or how much money your family makes. And that was a huge piece of House Bill 567. I think that was a huge piece that brought on a lot of the bipartisan support. So that bill passed the House today, uh, is heading over to the Senate. There's a companion in the Senate by Senator Hughes. It's Senate Bill 190. And I'm hearing that that might come up in a committee next week, although that hasn't been posted yet. Um, a couple other bills that we testified on this week, House Bill 3041, it creates a pilot program for the Family First Prevention Services Act. Um, the really simple way of explaining this is the federal government changed the law a couple years ago and now allows states to use money they receive under Title IV of the Social Security Act to fund services designed to keep kids out of foster care. Previously, they could only use that money once a child had been removed and placed into foster care. So again, furthering this goal of preserving and strengthening families, preventing removals um, into the system, really 
trying to avoid the trauma caused to children when you separate them from their families. Uh, we also testified in support of House Bill 2926 by Representative Tan Parker. Uh, and I love the fact that they scheduled this bill during Holy Week because I like to call it the redeemed parent bill. Um, about half of all states have a provision in their statute that allows for the reinstatement of previously terminated parental rights. And this is another tool to keep kids from languishing in the foster care system. So the good example of how House Bill 2926 would help is, say you have a parent who was struggling with substance use issues when their child was very young, and that resulted in that child being removed into foster care and that parent's rights being terminated. In the ensuing years, that parent turned their life around, got clean, has become an upstanding functional member of society. That child is still in foster care and at risk of aging out and at risk of all of the harms that come from aging out. This bill would allow a court with uh, the Department of Family and Protective Services and other <clears throat> interested parties, attorneys for the child, attorneys for the family, to say, you know, this parent has demonstrated that they've been rehabilitated, they've fixed their problems, they're willing and able to parent this child. Well, reinstate those rights. This parent is now this child's parent again, um, and this child is no longer in the foster care system. It's a very, very powerful tool to help kids um, and to restore families that had previously uh, been broken up. Um, again, I, it's probably one of my favorite bills this session just because of what it says about man's capacity to change, to be redeemed, and to heal that which is broken. Well, let's hope that it uh, goes through Senate committee very seamlessly gets put on the intent calendar and rises after three several days. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, James. So the big elephant in the room, taxpayer funded lobbying. Is that a thing? Oh, I, oh, I didn't even know that. That's a thing. So is it, uh, is it lobbying funded by taxpayer dollars? <laughs> oh, now I know what you're talking about. So <laughs> Yes. Later, uh, <laughs> in just a few days, we're going to have our big taxpayer-funded lobbying bill come up for discussion in the Senate. That is, of course, Senate Bill 10, and it's going to be heard on Tuesday, probably in the early afternoon, around 2 or 3 o'clock after they finish up on the floor. And basically what it would do is tell cities and counties that they can't use public money to hire well-heeled Austin lobbyists, who will then, of course, uh, go up to the Capitol and ask for higher taxes, more spending, and bigger government. And so uh, looking forward to engaging with uh, with the upper chamber on this issue. This is, of course, the foundation's number one priority this session is to end taxpayer-funded lobbying. And in fact, I've been encouraged to, uh, uh, to ask folks kindly to visit keeptexastexan.org. Uh, and uh, look for some information on taxpayer-funded lobbying there, or uh, I believe, as we've phrased it, eliminate tax dollars for uh, that go towards lobbyists. And uh, you can uh, input your address and uh, reach out and, and contact your legislator and let them know how you feel about this particular issue. It is of such significance because, of course, Taxpayer-funded lobbyists affect virtually every other issue and in a negative way if you're a conservative. So looking forward to uh, engaging next Tuesday around 2 or 3 o'clock 
uh, at the Texas Capitol. If you have a chance, please join us up there. We need as many strong conservative voices on this issue as humanly possible. Now, now James, those of us that are more bombastic than you sometimes dip a toe into the text ledge Twitter. Can you help us understand why it is specifically that you want to throw teachers in jail for talking to their legislators? <laughs> well, well, Senate Bill 10 would actually only target cities and counties. So this is a, a bit of a, a differentiation between Senate Bill 10 and HB 749, which, of course, would apply to all political subdivisions. But this bill in particular uh, is not necessarily about censoring uh, our local elected officials. It's really about removing the middleman. So instead of allowing cities and counties to uh, hire lobbyists who then pester legislators for bigger government, what we're saying is if you, local official, want to ask for these things, then go and do it yourself. Go and either testify in person, pick up a phone, write an email, do something uh, without the participation of the, the lobbying influence. And so uh, really, it's about about removing a pernicious influence from the process that doesn't necessarily uh, allow for the kind of accountability that I think we all expect. Excellent. Thank you so much, James. Now, Andrew, you mentioned the family first work earlier, but you also had an important thing that you have been working with with our Opportunity Project uh, about safety net reform. Would you like to cover that? Yeah. Uh, so our Opportunity Project, it's a new project that we are developing here in the foundation. And we're looking basically at reforming our social safety nets or welfare, as many of the listeners might know it. Uh, there's a couple bills that we have moving through the House, uh, House Bill 1516 by Tan Parker, which would require an efficiency audit of the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families program. Temporary Assistant for Needy's Families Program, or TANF in shorthand, is one of the larger social safety net programs, and it has the most flexibility. So the states get that money in a block grant that they're allowed to use for any number of reasons. One of the problems that has occurred with TANF is states have started using those dollars for things unrelated to helping those the dollars are intended to help. So, for example, spending on administrative expenses, overhead, employee benefits uh, for state employees, rather than allowing that money to go to help our neediest Texans achieve self-sufficiency. So that efficiency audit that HB 1516 would create would identify those areas of waste as well as opportunities for consolidation, elimination of duplication of services, making sure that more of the TANF dollars gets to those whose it's intended to help rather than being wasted on government bureaucracy. Similar bill is House Bill 1886 by Representative Candy Noble. And that bill would do a broad study of all of the social safety net programs that are operating in Texas right now. And that would be an internal study conducted by the LBB. The efficiency audit is a third-party independent um, contractor that we would bring in to conduct that audit. Um, so under 1886, the Legislative Budget Board would actually conduct a an in-depth study of all of our uh, social safety net programs and report back to the legislature on their findings regarding effectiveness, waste, uh, inefficiencies, those types of things, so that the legislature in the next session 
uh, would be able to make some tweaks uh, to improve the quality of services that we're providing to the neediest Texans. And, and James, you've been a little bit busy lately on the issue of emergency powers. How about you kind of give us a broad overview and then we can kind of delve into specifics? Yeah. So a few weeks ago, I had the uh, the pleasure of testifying on the House's version of disaster powers reform, which of course is HB3. Uh, this week, we weighed in on the Senate side and took a position on Senate Bill 1025 and uh, the constitutional amendment that came with it, SJR 45. And both of those bills, I thought, were... Um, well-structured and targeted at a particular issue. So one of the, one of the things that we approached the committee with during, uh, uh, during our, our time with them was we, we raised the issue of the need for a check and balance uh, in, in our current system. Because when you look at, at, at how some of the events of the last year played out, I think it was very obvious that the legislature was very much absent from the process. And, you know, I, I, I'm not here to, to throw stones or armchair quarterback, but I think moving forward, it's, it's fairly obvious that we need to reassert the role of the legislature in the process. And that's one of the big things that uh, SB 1025 and SJR 45 do is they affirm that the legislature has a role to play after a definitive period, which in this case is 30 days. So, you know, from the time that a governor declares a statewide disaster uh, to the uh, to a 30-day period, uh, once that period concludes, then the legislature would convene in a special session and be able to uh, exercise some level of discretion and, and provide some sort of oversight as to what's going on. And I I think that's such a beneficial thing for our constitutional republic because, of course, you know, vesting too much authority in any one individual is really contrary to our form of government, especially if it's over a protracted period. And so I think with these two bills, we've begun to reform the system in a good way. And I, that was reflected in committee because uh, right after testimony concluded, we actually uh, saw a vote. And uh, the bill came out of committee five to zero, bipartisan support. So I think everybody uh, recognizes that that some level of reform is needed to our state's disaster laws. I look forward to seeing these these two bills make their way to the floor because, again, you know, there's a widespread recognition that the legislature needs to kind of amp up its role in the process. And we'll see how it's received in the House. I'm not quite sure, but uh, there there seems to be a recogni recognition by both chambers that there's room for improvement here, and uh, in, in that uh, you know some level of reform is needed. So I'm really excited to to see what happens over the next you know 60 days or so uh, as we move towards signing die. I think the legislature is getting ready to act in one way or another to really beef up its role as it pertains to any future disasters. And again, you know, one of the things that I really appreciated about Chairman uh, Birdwell's presentation of the issue is he said, look, I'm not here to legislate toward a person. I'm here to legislate toward a policy. Uh, and he made it very clear that the bills he was putting forward were not a criticism of the governor's action or inaction during COVID. 
but really it's it, it's a recognition that you know the system we have in place now is deficient in a fairly obvious way and that we need to restructure our 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 policies based on our past experience and so um very much looking forward to seeing how this all plays out in the next 60 days and then finally andrew one more thing we have in state affairs the issue of camping bans oh yes house bill 1925 i've been refreshing tlo because i'm hearing a rumor that it'll be voted on today and um, this is representative capriglione's bill um and it would essentially um, prohibit uh, localities from doing what Austin has done, which is lift their bans on public camping and create a public health crisis for uh, homeless Texans as well as uh, those who live in the community. Um, it's a good bill. Uh, I think it addresses part of the bigger problem. You know, the camping ban, like we always say, is a symptom of a larger problem with how we have addressed the homelessness problem in this country for a number of years. And it's just finally coming to a head. Um, and the biggest reason for that is because of a federal policy called housing first. And the entire point of housing first is if you are serving the homeless and providing them with shelter, you can only provide them with shelter. You are not allowed to, have any expectations of them. So for example, if someone is homeless because they're struggling with a substance use disorder, you are not able to require them to get drug treatment as a condition of their housing. You are not allowed to require them to take job training classes or to find employment uh, as a condition of receiving housing. So essentially the Housing First program is the opposite of compassionate. It's warehousing people who have very serious needs and just letting them suffer. Just get out of the way into this housing that we'll provide for you and destroy yourselves rather than what we should be doing as a compassionate society, which is recognizing the inherent dignity of our neighbors and helping them better themselves, helping them address the very real struggles in their lives and meeting not just a short-term physical need, but deeper mental, physical, and spiritual needs. Those types of services, and there are examples of um, nonprofits out there who have done this and who have basically said, no, thank you. We don't want housing first dollars because we want to invest in the future of the people that we're serving and just putting them in housing does not allow us to do that. Seems to be that they're under the impression that man can live on red alone, or in this case with shelter as well. <laughs> it would appear so. Well, gentlemen, I really appreciate you joining us this week and bringing us up to speed with some of the, the major items going forward in the Texas legislature. I'm Derek Cohen on behalf of Andrew Brown, James Quintero, and producer Crystal. Look forward to talking to you next week.